All rise in the courtroom and to those listening on stream for the dishonorable badger is entering the scene. Apparently doing this as a day job simply was not enough. So let your jaws drop to the floor cause we can't make this stuff up. Welcome back to the legal fun house. We put the fun in dysfunctional. It's crazy in the legal fun house but weirdly educational. But every single one is remarkably true. to law school and is more than qualified to talk about the strangest cases from the strangest people alive and the friend that he brought along barely past eighth grade whose legal experience lies within parking in the fire lane welcome back to the legal fun house we're just as confused as you it's finally time for the legal fun house and without further ado Every single one is remarkably true. It's Boozy's Legal Funhouse. It's Boozy's Legal Funhouse. It's Boozy's Legal Funhouse. It's Boozy's Legal Funhouse. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 27 of Boozy's Legal Funhouse. I forgot what I fucking named it again. I am your host, the Boozy Badger, and I am here tonight, as always, with our certified legal layman, Alkali. Hello, friends. Thank you for letting me join you, Boozy. Now, just before we get started, as a reminder, Boozy's Legal Funhouse is recorded semi-live, and that's the recording that goes up on every podcast server out there. Uh, just... I don't edit them. I can. I have the software. I've determined I have the ability. I'm just not fucking going to. <laughs> the lazy is strong with us. So tonight we're going to have, I, I've got a good case for you, and I did something I never fucking do. All right. I sent the case to Alkali in advance. And I, yep. I told Alkali, I said, the facts section is long. We will get shit if we mess up the facts section. Read the facts section so you know what you cannot joke about in this goddamn case. Thanks for that. I'm assuming you actually did it. I did. I uh, used a black marker to redact all the words I didn't know. So what I read was the words the a lot. Meanwhile, I did not. (laughs) <laughs> I, I did not refresh myself on the facts of this case whatsoever. I did what I do in court hearings. I'm like, I got the file. Fuck it. We're doing it live. <laughs> oh, my God. But before we get into that, I do need to read off the names of the Patreon supporters of Boozy's Legal Funhouse over at Patreon.com. Lawyers and Liquor at the $5 level and above. So a special thank you to Tezcat Magic, Jag, Waylon DeRoche, Beaton, Dozer Trash Panda, Mama T, Uncle Kage, Evelyn Klein, Lisa Lupe, Lufus the Raccoon, Netherlinks, Pandemonium, Petroff Neutrino, Buddy Goodboy, CC Otter, Chroma Hydra, David Hunter, Dragor, Eddie the Weatherfox, Flatfax, Ghost Goat, Grace Jane Gollinger, Hade Fox and Jason Knight, John Michael Carden, 
Julie Esslinger, Jess James, Lack, Mark Whipple, Michael Blocker, Nikolai, Otto Poom, Red Fox, Romeo Rabbit, Scuba Fox, Sarathan, Tekel, The Dragon Show, Tiny Voices, William Kennard, and Ziggy. If you want to be one of those wonderful people, you can go to patreon.com slash lawyers and liquor, or you can just send me money at paypal.com slash guess what? Lawyers and liquor. It's it goes to the same fucking place, and that's me. <laughs> it goes to the same place as the lawyers and the liquor. We yeah, got this. exactly. Yeah, I am the lawyer. Uh, give me your liquor. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> How does that work for you when you go to a bar and tell people that your drink is empty? Yeah, it doesn't. It, it fucking so. For listeners who aren't aware, Alkali and I, the the way that we got to know each other, the way we became very sincerely, like, I, I say best friends. I don't know what you we fucking, are. I don't know what you say. Like, <laughs> you're, you're, on, you're being recorded now. It's for posterity. This is your chance to break my goddamn heart live to an audience. You are the reason I drink. Ergo, best friend. <laughs> But we travel everywhere. We do uh, performances together. We do performances separately. Uh, Alkali uh, very recently just finished doing performances at a convention in Oklahoma City. Uh, Two weeks ago, and I never go to conventions when I'm not performing, so a couple weeks ago I decided I was going to go to a fan convention in Boston. And there is a very good friend of ours whose whole shtick is... He doesn't buy his own drinks. He just puts out on social media where he is and his glass is empty and waits for drinks to appear, and it works. So I I tried that in Boston. And one of you wonderful listeners who was there at that convention saw that and came down to the bar, and I looked at them and I said, my drinks are empty after a nice conversation, and they said, well, I'm going back to my room to drink my liquor, and left. That's perfect. That is perfect. You know why? Because our friend, when you buy him a drink, is drinking a nice $7 Riesling, and you are drinking 12-year-old scotch. I'm drinking aged tequila. They don't buy us drinks because they're smart. I I love the thought that goes in like, no, they're not buying us drinks because we drink the good shit. But I've just got to, I am a garbage disposal of alcohol when other people are buying me drinks. And that weekend, I was not drinking the good shit. I was having screwdrivers. I was sitting in a hotel bar in Boston drinking screwdrivers and Long Island iced teas. Oh, my God. So I kind of ran into the uh, opposite problem in Oklahoma. Uh, As I am aware, because I looked it up, it is not a THC legal state. And I need to prove to myself every once in a while that I don't need it. So I decided to take a tea break. Well, one person was kind enough to buy me a drink. That was very nice of them. But my cuff doth overfloweth with the amount of THC I was offered in the state where it is not recreationally legal. We're not talking about, hey, want to split a joint? Someone walked up to me like, yeah, I've never seen this. This is a thousand milligram bar of chocolate. Like, that doesn't even exist by a, that should be a pallet of chocolate. No, tiny bar, slightly green tinted. Oh boy. Like, I I must pass. So they're just looking at me like, 
Right, and you're the expert of smoking. Like, I need to survive. If you are hearing, by the way, bangs and sounds like that in the background, the reason's very simple. I'm recording from my kitchen right now uh, because my office, my studio downstairs, is still being put together. And my spouse decided that right as I said, it is time to record the podcast. was the perfect time to clean the kitchen. (laughs) I just put the chicken in. But, so, yeah. Once again, I don't edit this. That was my spouse. Say hello again, honey, for the hundreds of people that download these episodes. Hello, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> I'll try not to make we love you, QM. Please go to patreon.com slash lawyers and liquor because the only reason I get away with this shit is we have income from it. Um, <laughs> it's amazing how many things that solve. Hey, let's get a small pool table. What are we going to do that? We'll put it on the show and make income. Well, that's a wonderful idea. Yes, pool table. <laughs> oh, so I have to do before we get into it tonight, because it's not just a bullshit session. We are going to talk about legal news stories and our case tonight. That time the city of Philadelphia just fucking aerial bombed a city block and then refused to pay for it. Um, the legal disclaimer. Boozy's Legal Funhouse is an educational, informational, and hopefully entertaining podcast about law and legal issues. What it is not is legal advice. I am an attorney. I am not your attorney. The way that you hire an attorney is you go to their office, you tell them your legal issue, they listen, they agree to represent you. You sign an engagement letter and pay a retainer of their choosing. Do not just PayPal me a buck and say I'm your lawyer. It doesn't fucking work like that. And then you have retained counsel. These are general legal principles we're going to be talking about tonight. Anything that is specific to a case you may or may not be involved in, you need to retain licensed legal counsel in your jurisdiction to handle that. No attorney-client privilege is created. No attorney-client relationship exists. Please, whatever you have done, do not say a fat guy on the internet told me it's okay. It will not hold up well in court. But could they try? I mean, like, you can try anything. When I'm contacted, I'm going to go, I have never heard of this fucking person. <laughs> and then if they're like, well, they said they talked about it in your Twitch chat while you were live recording a podcast, I am going to give the prosecutors the log of the Twitch chat. It will not work for you. There is no attorney-client relationship here. Also, if they watch any part of this show, they're going to hear the nonsense that falls out of my mouth. And they're like, oh, not only are these guys definitely not lawyers, they're probably not people. We are bots. (laughs) That said, it is time for one of my favorite parts of the week. And that is the Legal News Roundup. Once again, all of our stories are coming from the ABA Journal. And we are starting today with a story actually from 2018. I'm not sure why it's from 2018. Matter of fact, let me just make sure. Okay, yeah, this is this is a uh, this is an old one. I must have pulled it without actually looking at it. That happens sometimes. Well, back in 2018, <laughs> the holy shit. fucking current events here. <laughs> Woo! Oh my yeah. god. You know what? No, we're not going to talk about this one. Fuck it. Doing it live. I'm making it audible. audible. We're not going to talk about this one because that one may end up being a future episode. (laughs) Okay, then. (laughs) Instead, 
Instead, let's go to law school. Let's let's go to law school. Law schools. By- Same thing my parents said when I wanted to go to broadcasting school. No, let's go to law school. <laughs> and actually, your parents probably would have been much happier if you were like, hey, I, I want to go to law school. Now go go be a broadcast journalist. No, like, we met in the middle. I wanted to go to broadcast school. They wanted me to go to law school. I went to business school. You know what I learned? How to run the business of my podcast. Ha ha, I win. You know what I love is the the difference in growing up. Because you're like, I want to go to broadcast school. My parents said I should be a lawyer. I grew up with a parent who was a lawyer. And I said, I want to go to law school. And my dad said, have you considered journalism? Well, that's the most depressing laugh I've had all week. Thank you. Thank you for that. Columbia Law School has an adjunct professor uh, named Daniel Capra. Daniel Capra uh, teaches at that school uh, and an adjunct professor. It's like they're not a professor. Like, geez, there's no good way to say this. This isn't going to piss people off. Because uh, I was about to say they're not real professors, and then I'm like, I am going to piss off everybody if I say an adjunct professor is not a real professor. That's going to anger a lot of people. Um, and they they are an untenured professor. They're almost like a part time professor sometimes. Uh, and, okay. in law, and in law schools, that's very common. You you'll have an adjunct who uh, many times will be like a practicing attorney as well. Okay. Uh, their side gig. Their right. side hustle is teaching people how to do uh, hustle. Right. So Daniel Capra teaches at Columbia Law School, and he apparently uh, became known for giving very, very, very fast lectures. He he would lecture on topics uh, at a speed. And some of the students in the class uh, thought that it was... Um, it was interesting at that like they had trouble keeping up all right because uh, you know a lot of information coming at you very quickly and during a lecture as an adjunct professor at columbia law school uh capra was asked by one of his students to slow down a little because some of some of the uh the international students were having issues understanding him Okay, I completely understand this. I had a calculus teacher who had a very similar problem. Absolutely brilliant man. No one had any idea what he was talking about half the time. Right. So how do you think Capra responded to that? Well, you and one other person, the only lawyers I know, and you have very similar styles, so I'm going to guess... He turned into the micro machine man and started showing them how fast he could actually go. I mean, no. Before reminding them that the speed he was going is just fine. No, no. What what he did uh, was tell students that their difficulties as international students trying to understand a fast paced lecture in a language that was not their first language was an assumption of risk. Holy shit. 
We went over assumption of risk. We did. He lauded them. He he used it as a teachable moment. Well, what a glorious asshole. Yeah, then when the students started to walk away, he muttered fuck you under his breath, but forgot he was wearing a lapel mic. Oh. Oh, there's only one thing you should ever whisper into a microphone, and that is, of course, it's time for the fucking show. Right? I just, just fuck you. You know, that's what it sounds like an assumption of risk. Fuck you. And it's like, I'm looking at a picture of this right now, and I don't know how I forgot he was wearing it. It's like, it wasn't one of those tiny mics that sits on your car. It was like this, in the middle of his shirt, just this giant black dot with a wire running off of it. Oh, God. So, yeah, I mean, it was like the loud, the fuck you heard throughout Columbia Law School. Oh, God. So, obviously, Columbia Law School responded, and, and Capra has said that he's very ashamed of how he reacted. Columbia Law School uh, said that, that they felt that it was disrespectful, has met with the students to say they were sorry about it, has talked to Capra and told him it can't happen again. Uh, but he's just an adjunct, right? So, okay. like, what's the worst that happens? Except he's not just an adjunct. He's an adjunct at Columbia Law School. It appears he's actually a professor at Fordham Law School. Um, so, so the Fordham University School of Laws, Dean, has now gotten involved um, and, and basically said, yeah, it, it, it's really, like, it's not consistent with, with what we've come to expect from him. We think this may be a one-off, but, man... <laughs> See, I just, it is still wild to me because I don't come from a, a, a career background where saying fuck you to somebody isn't just expected. It's really not, that's just how the job goes sometimes. I think that would be different with college students because they might say, when? Right? Like this, over me. He looks a little bit like Grandpa you'd like to fuck. Like I'm looking at it. It's like if Adam Schiff. It's like if Adam Schiff and Rudy Giuliani had a baby. Well, there that was the line I needed to hear. Thank you for that. I'm gonna go take an ice bath now to continue the feeling I am feeling now. What the hell? So that that is Capra in Columbia Law School. We got one more case on the recent news here. This actually is recent. This is from today. Right. Oh, that's very recent. <clears throat> so, Brianna, being written as you read it. Brianna McClain uh, is in North Carolina. She's driving her car. She gets in a car crash. The other driver dies. All right. Uh, and she, uh, she did eventually plead guilty to involuntary manslaughter, which tends to indicate that uh, she was responsible. Uh, <coughs> it says here... That McLean caused a May 2020 head-on collision when she used a shoulder to pass someone while speeding, swerved to avoid hitting the guardrail, lost control of her car, went over the median, crossed three lanes of traffic, and hit 18-year-old Morgan Weatherby, uh, injuring her, placing her in a position where she was in medical treatment for seven months, undergoing 30 surgeries before she passed on. So she does the reasonable thing. Right. She uh, she she obviously goes on social media and says, I need a new car. 
that's the reasonable thing that that is not something you are going to soon forget i'm not imagining my first thought as i need a new car i'm probably going with i'm gonna be a monk now i mean that I mean, is my life but silence she, and contemplation but she needed a new car and she needed that new car very badly and she couldn't afford it so what do you think she did go fund me she started go fund me now how do you, uh, how do you think a GoFundMe would go if what you put on it is I did not want to wait in traffic, got into the shoulder, swerved to avoid hitting the guardrail, crossed three lanes of traffic, and killed an 18-year-old? I'm going to guess that that gets taken off GoFundMe fairly quickly and put onto its sister platform, Go Fuck You, created by a law school professor who is very, very good at using that term. Well, I, I mean, that probably would, but her GoFundMe stayed up. Did it mention the reason she needed a new car? It certainly did. It said she was in an accident. Did it go into details it, about yes, that accident? Yes, it did. It went into a lot of details about the accident. Were any of those details true? Absolutely fucking not. She said Morgan Weatherby hit her and totaled her car, and she was not at fault at all. She posted that to her Facebook. She later would plead guilty to involuntary manslaughter uh, as a result of it at her sentencing. Okay. Uh, Judge Lutrosh... Uh, sentenced her to probation without a driver's license and imposed a suspended sentence with extra conditions. What do you think the extra conditions were? Before we go into the extra conditions, I gotta say, it already sounds like she doesn't need a car. She doesn't have a license. So this is already bullshit. Right? Right? Let's see. The extra conditions? Maybe, oh, I don't know, don't have a bunch of random strangers pay for your new car by lying to them. Well, kind of, because uh, what the extra condition Lou Trush put on this was go back to social media and tell them what you fucking did. Oh, shit. Okay, so the, the, the post was already out there and they knew about it when she was sentenced? Yeah. They t- oh, I didn't actually know they could do that. They went back there and said, go tell them the truth. Well, I mean, you can, because when somebody goes on, like, a suspended sentence, what what a lot of us know as probation, okay? That, that's okay. a lot of Because that's part of the deal, is they'll put conditions on the probation. You, know, you must report to your probation officer. You need to do drug tests. Uh, there's standard... Oh, heard of. Right? There, there's standard probation conditions. Uh, and you agree to them because it's an alternative to going the fuck to jail. Yeah. All right? And you can impose, judges can impose, special conditions sometimes. And in this case, Judge Trosh said, if you want probation, you will agree to all of our standard conditions. You will agree to these special conditions. And one of these special conditions is you will fucking admit what you did. Ooh. All right, so... The GoFundMe has been active. It's got time left in it, I'm assuming, because they haven't gotten their money. And the judge says, go over there and, what, change your post to be like, I murdered a person, buy me a car. On all of your social media where you have said that you were the victim of the car crash, you need to correct the message. She posted a Facebook message last weekend that reads, 
in reference to the previous post that I, Brianna McClain, claimed I was the victim in the car accident that took the life of Morgan Weatherby, spelled Weatherby's name wrong, could not be fucking bothered to spell her victim's name correctly. She was the victim. I sincerely apologize for the post that was very insensitive and disrespectful, and I am sincerely sorry for the family of Morgan for their loss. Not sorry enough to do a spell check, but you know. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. Not, not sorry enough to actually correctly spell the name of the person you murdered. Uh, well, no, I'm, I'm sorry, not murdered. Involuntarily manslaughtered. Thank you, thank you. Uh, let's be accurate. I'm sorry in the way a person who involuntary manslaughters and then asks the general public to buy me a car. I'm yeah. sorry in that way. Like, you know, that, that's the one that hits me is... Like, she causes the accident. She starts the GoFundMe. Uh, she says she's the victim. And it's like, I need $2,800 for donations. At the same time, she's obviously being charged and pursued on criminal matters. And the thing that gets her to retract that statement is the judge saying, hey, I'm going to send you to jail <laughs> if you if you don't do this. So, like, that's being forced to be sorry, I guess. Like... The, the embarrassment factor, okay, I'm on board with. But the the part where it's like, oh, well, we want a genuine show of remorse, and you know that the only reason they're doing it is because the judge just said, if you don't want to go to prison, you will do this. Uh, oh, I love... I love people. You know, I, I shouldn't be so mean. I've been forced to be sorry before. You know how loud I am. You know how tall I am. I didn't see Dragor standing with their five-foot-nothing ass next to me and did a full scream directly into their ear. I found it very amusing. But I was forced to be sorry, and I was forcibly sorry. There is a slight difference between blowing out somebody's eardrums by being loud and killing a person. You know, I didn't think of it like that. <laughs> the case goes to boozy. <laughs> I mean, like, we've all done things we regret. Yes, I have. I've never killed someone, to my knowledge. <laughs> to my knowledge. <laughs> that's, that's legalese for they've definitely killed someone. <laughs> So if you this here's a quick message for everybody listening. If uh, last episode, well, episode before last episode, now you downloaded uh, our podcast and, and you were in one of the ninety people to first download it, uh, we got offered uh, a per download amount for an advertisement that that monetized like ninety episodes before they were out of money. So. I really hope you all enjoyed the Vampire Sex Podcast that advertised in episode 25 of Boozy's Legal Funhouse. And I would like to remind you that, yes, we are open to putting ads in the fucking show. Please, for the love of God, don't make me do that for $1.50 again. I'm sorry. Hold on. We're, we're, we're going to backtrack. Vampire Sex Podcast. Vampire Sex Podcast. I listened to their ad before being like, yeah, just insert that in the fucking middle of the roll. Um, <laughs> and it is the best I can tell. It is a fan podcast for discussing vampire erotica. <laughs> which, which should say something 
about my audience. <laughs> All right. Well, we've looked at your general audience. Uh, we've looked at everything, <clears throat> and we're thinking vampires fucking. We're really, yeah. we really, we got something here. Everything that you guys watch lines up with Elicard laying on their back with O face. This is what we need. <laughs> Alicard laying on their back. Alicock. Um, they wanted to suck something it wasn't necessarily your blood Uh, I understand this you were given uh, a grand total of a dollar 25 for that a dollar 50 a dollar don't you oh that's a percentage wise that was a big increase from what I thought Uh, we do have an offer in the chat they're giving us five dollars just to talk about them (laughs) so you know what I think we I think we got something here you uh, I'll tell you what, I am more than happy to take it. Uh, send me the five bucks, and if you have a prepared statement, we will read it on the next episode. I swear to God. You will read it. I will make fun of it, because that is how this works. <laughs> That's how it works. Like, it was between that and the mattress people. And I'm like, you know what? Fuck the 15% of the $500 mattress. I know my listeners. None of them can afford a mattress. <laughs> Well, no, they're using it for all that <laughs> vampire sex that's going I'll, on around them. Ta- this is your dyna- dynamic. That's not the right word. We got this. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, oh, well, as watching the chat, we have just been given $6 to not read the statement. This is... Very lucrative business idea. Really, I'll, I'll tell you what, if you're in the chat and you want, like, listen, I'm not picky. I'll do an episode where, like, there's a 20-minute period of just me reading your bios for five bucks a piece. I'll even preface it with, stick around, I've got to do this for money. <laughs> so tonight's... All right, I, go ahead, go, no, you go, you go. T- tonight's <laughs> case is... Uh, should I, I? I should read the entire caption. Uh, That's I, probably a good idea. Yeah, it, it is. It is from the Third Circuit, the United States Court of Appeals for the Third Circuit. Do you have any questions about what a fucking circuit is, Alkali? I, I absolutely know. I've been electrocuted once or twice. We're good. Not that type of circuit. <laughs> Not. Oh. Is it, oh. No, yeah, you're right. The second one is the one that electrocuted me. The third one is the one that blows out every time I use my microwave, right? Yes, sure. Nailed uh, it. All right, you, you know my how... legal microwave. Yeah, not too long ago we were discussing the uh, the state-level courts of appeals, and you were amazed that Pennsylvania was like, you know what, no, we're making our own court for things against us, right? You can explain that as many times as you want. I will never get over that because I can shatter all of your arguments with the literal description of how it works. It's Listen, it's legal Calvin ball. We're good. Uh, <laughs> so the same sort of setup works in the uh in the federal courts there's the united states district courts and those are uh normally in the state by district like in pennsylvania we have three districts we have the eastern district the western district and the middle district okay and appeals from the district courts go to the circuit court there's i think 11 circuits presently the third circuit each circuit has like all the district courts in a set of states in it 
Like the Third Circuit is Delaware, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, and the U.S. Virgin Islands because they're all so closely related. Um, and they hear all of the appeals from the U.S. District Courts. Then appeals from the Circuit Courts go to the U.S. Supreme Court if they're accepted. All right? Right. Okay. So, <clears throat> this case from the United States Court of Appeals for the Third Circuit arising from Pennsylvania is Nanny Cheney, Leroy Hampton Jr., Ernestine M. Rice, Trina McClain, Lynn Johnson, Teresa A. Grayer-Campbell, Cassandra Carter-Johnston, Thomas Mapp Sr., Betty Mapp, husband and wife, Betty Mappy, Ernest Hubbard, Esther Hus- Hubbard, husband and wife, uh, Esther Hubbard, one, Robert Ford, Gwendolyn Ford as husband and wife, Gwendolyn Ford, one, which when you hear me say somebody's name, husband, wife, and one, what I'm saying is they are appearing first the husband individually, then with their spouse as husband and wife, then the spouse when the one is and them individually. Olatane Odenie, Adiola Odenie, husband and wife, Adiola Odenie, Lucretia Wilson, and Lee, Gerald Renfro, Constance Renfro as husband and wife, Virginia Cox, Hazel Taylor, Milton Williams, Sherry Williams as husband and wife, Frank Lewis, Ava Lewis as husband and wife, Ava Lewis individually, Kermit Bostick, Elizabeth Bostick as husband and wife, Mary J. Jackson, Samuel Madaway, Yvette Madaway as husband and wife, Yvette Madaway individually, Charles Renfro Jr., Gerald Renfro individually, Carrie F. Foskey, Barrett and Payne, and Constance Renfro individually versus... John, that was longer than our Patreon lists. John Street Mayor, City of Philadelphia. The City of Philadelphia, Errol McLaughlin, Commissioner, Department of Licenses and Inspections. Herbert E. Wetzel, Executive Director, Redevelopment Authority of the City of Philadelphia. This is a 2007 case appearing at the uh, United States District Court for the Eastern District of Pennsylvania, Civil Action Number 03-CV-06248, in front of the Third Circuit, at two appeal numbers, Appeal Number 061061 and 061256, both for the appeal and the cross-appeal. A cross-appeal, by the way, is like a cross-claim or a counter-claim. It is where you file an appeal from a decision, and then the other party goes, you know what? We think the lower court decision's bullshit too, but for different reasons. So they file their own appeal, and then you consolidate them to be heard in the same matter, so you don't have multiple appeal cases. Okay, so this is two appeal cases batched into one. That's what that right. meant. Two appeal cases, both arising from the same trial. That's right, because you can only bring up certain matters in an appeal case that are prudent to the appeal. Right? Am I still understanding that correctly? Right. What what happens? The way that appeals tend to work. All right. So we have a trial, and right. after the trial, uh, the lawyers may, if they think there was an error in the law or in the facts. Uh, on argument or there's an abuse of discretion, they may file an appeal, but you can only file an appeal as to something that you have preserved at at trial. Right. So uh, you'll object to shit at trial, you'll preserve it. If a judge rules the wrong way on a motion, you make sure that that's preserved for appeal after the trial, and then after the trial, you appeal the motion, things like that. If you don't preserve the error in trial, you cannot raise it on appeal. 
Okay. Okay. All right. Uh, so, like, say somebody oh, asks so my... What about the stupid movie thing that happens all the time? There's new evidence. That was not brought up in trial, so that's not an appeal? No, that that's a whole different thing. There's something called... That's a whole different thing. Yeah. Let's not go there. That. There's we'll do something that called post-conviction. Okay. And I've got a couple cases that we can use for that. Oh, good. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about that yeah. one then. Okay. But that, that's, but that a, is totally yeah, that's, different. That's a whole different thing. Happened. thing. It had to happen. Okay. Like that, there's, there's a process for that. Like, you ask for something called post-conviction relief, and then if it gets denied, you appeal that but there's there's a whole process for like after discovered evidence uh in a criminal matter all right so all of this arises all those people all those people are from philadelphia okay Okay. and And, all of them fit behind the table in the courtroom crazy (laughs) but i like they they have one or two lawyers like it's not it's not like uh, like they're probably all in the courtroom (laughs) yes I just like the, uh, we only have this much room. It's a it's a legal matter. You all have to fit behind the table. Now we're over code, so we're suing for that. We need an appeal on this code. This is the rabbit hole, Boozy. The rabbit hole. And, and, and in order to understand why all those people in the early 2000s are suing the city of Philadelphia, we've got to go back to 1985 in the city of Philadelphia. All right. Okay, then. In 1985, the mayor of Philadelphia is a person named Wilson Good. And a home in Philadelphia, in the Powelton Village neighborhood of Philly, in 1978, had a group of people living in it called MOVE. MOVE was an activist organization as part of a back-to-nature movement, primarily, if not completely, African-Americans. They move into this house in the Powhatan Village neighborhood in 19, uh, before 1978. In 1978, the city of Philly says, we're going to evict you. All right? So from 1978 to 1985, the city of Philadelphia is attempting to evict the move group out of this home in Powhatan Village. And there's a lot of back and forth. Like the city considered them to be... Uh, to be terrorists, more or less. Okay, like the city was treating them like terrorists. There's at least 13 MOVE members in uh, 1985 that are living in this home. It's at 6221 Osage Avenue. It's in West Philadelphia, which if you listen to uh, Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, you you know what they, West Philadelphia born and raised? Like that oh, time okay. period? Yeah. Uh, like when did Fresh Prince come out? Do you know? Because I don't. Not even remotely. Okay. I, that was not one that I watched when I was younger, unfortunately. Like, it was the 90s, though, right? Yeah, 90s sounds right. Yes. Yeah, like early 90s. 1990-ish is what uh, yeah. Chad is saying. So, like, we, we are, like, five years out from that. Like, Will okay. Smith's right. character would have been in West Philadelphia when this happened. Oof. Like, he would have been a child in, in West Philadelphia at the time of this event. All right. So the See, they really wanted to have an episode about this, but they'd rather have a skydiving accident, you know, classic classic moments. So the move group moves into this home and like the, there are allegations that they are disturbing the neighborhood, like they're using loudspeakers, they're making noise. Um and the city kind of says, "Okay, we want you out." 
they don't leave. In 1985, uh, the... Philadelphia police got arrest and search warrants based on a probable cause affidavit, and they went to forcibly remove them from the home. Okay? Okay. Uh, So they're issued on May 11th. On May 12th, the police go in, and because, according to the police, uh, the group had blocked up the windows of the home, had constructed what they referred to as a bunker on the roof, and had ostensibly threatened to blow up the entire neighborhood, uh, the police start going door to door and going, hey, get the fuck out of here, shit's going to go down. Okay? The next morning, very early in the morning, uh, prior to 5.30 a.m., police officers, firefighters surround the MOVE residence in West Philadelphia, and at 5.30, with a bullhorn, announce they have arrest warrants for four of the members that are in the house and give them 15 minutes to surrender. The people in the house resist that. They basically say, yo, no, we're not coming out. Uh, They scream at, yo, we got guns, we're ready to fight you. Uh, The police fire smoke and tear gas into the house. Uh, They spray the house down with water to keep people from firing at them. Uh, The police allege that about that time, uh, muzzle flashes were coming from the rooftop bunker. Uh, They start shooting at the house. The house starts shooting at them. They can't breach the house, saying it's fortified. The police retreat. They consider using other methods to get in there. Uh, Then, that afternoon, a police helicopter appears overhead and drops a satchel of C4 explosive onto the fucking house. That's, that's That's one reaction that they could have. That is one... Yeah. Oh, it God. Sets barrels of gasoline on fire. Uh, sets neighboring homes on fire. Uh, 11 of the 13 residents in the house are, are killed. Just flat out killed. Uh, houses on adjoining streets burned down. Uh, I mean, this is a big fucking deal. Just right off the bat. And there's a whole lot about the move bombing that like is not known uh, like for certain and like we know a lot of it like we know for a fucking fact that if it was i don't know the italian neighborhood of philly cops probably weren't dropping a fucking bomb on it that that is that is got to be one of the biggest overreactions i have ever heard uh, we, we we can't get in here for this bullshit warrant we have a helicopter and a bunch of bombs. Oh, and it, that's it gets even me- oh. better. Uh, Mayor Good insists that nobody, nobody, contacted his office to ask for permission to drop a bomb on the city. That that seems like something that uh, what is it implied oral consent versus written consent that seems more along the lines of needs to be notarized need probably probably needs a few levels of acceptance before the, you drop a bomb out of a helicopter into a residential area now here here is the the statement that was read uh, to announce that they uh, they had 15 minutes to come out. They read a long speech, said, we have warrants. This was uh, Police Commissioner Samber at the time of the Philadelphia Police, and ended it with, attention move. 
This is America. You have to abide by the laws of the United States. You have 15 minutes to come out. At 2 p.m., the commissioner then said, Bomb the fucking house. That is a new level of escalation. Uh, the the governor insisted that uh, nobody asked him about it, even though a Pennsylvania State Police helicopter was used. The mayor insisted that nobody asked him about it, even though uh, the police commissioner was bombing the fuck out of the place. Um, it was the bomb was made of up of essentially dynamite and two pounds of FBI supplied C four. Oh my God. There were two of these bombs totaling three pounds of explosive total. That is a very, very large explosive. I I used to do pyrotechnics. And as a still layman, that is a very large explosive. Uh, now, let, let me ask, um, this was obviously... The police say there was a lot of gunfire. We were in threat. Uh, how many police officers do you think were uh, were wounded? How many police officers yeah. were wounded? Well, yeah. you said they retreated, so I'm going to guess zero. Zero. Only one police officer is reported to have uh, been knowingly hit in a flak jacket. Oh, my God. Uh, 11 oh. people died in the fire. Uh, and just, you know, to make it slightly worse. Oh. Um, five of them were kids. Holy shit. Like this, this wasn't a bunch of adults in the house. These were adults and children. This was like a family situation. These were fam- this was, okay. I was not ready for that. I, I was not ready for that. And at all times, the police knew there were children in the house. Holy shit. Oh, I, I can, like, the aftermath of it's even, even fucking worse. Because uh, <clears throat> the the human remains from the bombing? Yeah? Uh, they, they weren't all buried. What do you mean they weren't all buried? They weren't all buried. Well, from the sounds of it, some of them were cremated on the spot. Two, at least two of the children were transferred to the University of Pennsylvania Museum of Archaeology and Anthropology. Ah. So what I'm hearing here is you don't need a comedian for this episode. I'm going to sign off. You, you, you've got this one, buddy. Oh my God! <laughs> How is that possible? Not only that, a professor of forensic anthropology there uh, used those bones for course demonstrations. It wasn't. All right. It wasn't until um, twenty twenty one uh, that this was became wide known due to a publication named Billy Penn, uh, which is kind of like a, a newspaper in Philly, uh, that discovered that and then discovered the bones had actually been transferred from the University of Pennsylvania 
to uh, Princeton. And Princeton, to their credit, was just kind of like, we had no fucking clue where these came from. Like, we, we, we were completely unaware of that. I can believe that. Yeah, you. I'm assuming you buy t- t- medical cadavers wholesale. I. Oh my God. Uh, the the city took a position that remains of other people from the uh, from the bombing had never been claimed. Okay. Uh, yeah, the health commissioner Thomas Farley resigned in 2021 after it was revealed that in 2017 he ordered the cremation and disposal of the victim's remains without identifying them or contacting members of their family. Uh, When you said this keeps getting worse and worse, I didn't realize. Oh, you think that's the end? No, 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 no. No, 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 no. Because the day after, the day after, the man who ordered, the and, and like, people may be like, well, why did they have the remains that long if this happened in 1985? And that's part of tonight's tale because the city of Philadelphia has not stopped having lawsuits since 1985 regarding this. Like new lawsuits keep popping new up. New lawsuits. Us. New lawsuits keep coming up. There's one pending right now. Holy shit. Uh, well, I mean, honestly, yeah, that should be something they deal with forever. So that, that is, oh my God. The day after Farley resigns, do you know what they found in the medical examiner's office? This is four years, four years after Farley said, cremate the remains and let's dispose of them properly now. At this point, I'm waiting for you to say at the medical examiner's office, the keys to the helicopter. They found a box in a refrigerated area of the office full of human remains labeled move. That... Oh, my God. What are they keeping it for? A rainy day? In case any other medical professionals needed a box of human... Holy, holy hell. This is, like, this is still going on. Like, there, there, is a, there was a legal team just two years ago combing through and trying to identify human remains and where the fuck they were and what happened to them. Oh my God. So that's the angry part. Well, the first angry part. All right. The first angry part. The first angry part. Let's itemize this shit. Yeah. (laughs) Because although this is related to the absolute horror show that was the move bombing, which, once again, just want to say, would not have happened in a white neighborhood because the police would have never dared drop bombs on white folk in Philly in the 80s. Oh, yeah, no shit. Um, Boozy, why, why are we... You, you don't drop bombs! There's a, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of little rules. Unwritten rules. You don't drop bombs like that. You don't do that. Right? So, but remember that part I said they dropped the bombs and... Two fucking streets worth of blocks burned. 
Okay, yeah. There were 61 homes in those blocks. 61 destroyed homes. They wiped out an entire neighborhood. There there are no words. Oh, it gets worse. All of this happened in May of 1985. In June of 1985, after dropping explosives in an African-American neighborhood, killing 11 people, including five children, mishandling their remains, and ending up sending some of them to fucking museums for 40 goddamn years... What do you think the city did in June? They burned down 61 homes. What do you think they did? Waiting for you to hear that they edited the map so that's no longer part of the state. Are you familiar with the words eminent domain? No. Yes. In 1985, June of 1985, one month after burning down 61 homes in this neighborhood through an overzealous and murderous use of force by their police department, the city of Philadelphia went to the Philadelphia Redevelopment Authority and said, hey, those two African-American blocks in the African-American neighborhood that we burned down, we would like you to declare them blighted condemn them, and seize them on behalf of the city for a redevelopment project. Uh, I've got nothing. That is, that is, that is so beyond evil. That's actually evil. Luckily, the homeowners did not take it lying down. Uh, because when the state files, eminent domain is an exercise of the state's police power. It, it goes, it's as old as time. It is the government can take your property to fulfill a public purpose. Now, the government has to give you notice. The government has to give you something called just compensation, which is uh, in Pennsylvania determined as being the value immediately before the government takes your property and the value immediately after that property. Like if it's a partial take, which is you're only taking a part of the property. Say I'm taking 10 feet of 20 feet, right? I get a value right before I file what's called the declaration of taking, which is the condemnation thing, the thing that condemns the property. Uh, Say that's $20,000. And then I get an appraisal of, what is the value immediately after I take half of that property? Okay. And then the city, then they say, well, it's, uh, it's $10,000 after you take the property. Okay. My estimated just compensation payment to you then should be $10,000. Okay. Yeah. The difference between what I, what it was before I took and after I took, if you're doing a total take, it's the entire value of the property immediately before the take. Okay. okay. Yeah. Uh, that that's what estimated just compensation is. But the government doesn't just get to do it. They have to have the authority to do it. They have to have a public purpose that can be served by doing it. It's a lot more complex because there's been rulings out of the Supreme Court that actually kind of say like quasi public purposes can use it. Like the city can take a block, uh, take an entire block, and then sell it to a developer who's going to develop the property for a public purpose. 
Like there's there's shit about this. The one I'm very used to would be the highway system. I'm a huge infrastructure nerd. So yeah, that's the one that I'm very used to seeing. Without going into what I do, because for those of you, I I work for an agency. Uh, Eminent domain is like a good 75% of my job. Because like, uh, yeah. there, there's steps to it. Like in Pennsylvania, when there's an eminent domain thing, we're taking your property. A, you can challenge the taking saying, hey, this isn't constitutionally sound. And then you ask for a board of view and you argue over the biggest fight is how much money should you get? Right. Uh, and you get a board of view and they make a recommendation. Then you take exceptions to the board of view. And then you go to trial on the matter, like a jury trial to help set the value. Uh, and I, Actually, I did not know that eminent domain ended in a jury yeah, trial. It can, that, it can end in a jury trial. It can end in oh, a jury okay. trial. And that's a, a huge part of my job, of my litigation. Like, I do a lot of things. I do, my, my role is I'm kind of like a general counsel for this agency, general litigation counsel. I'm one of like 40 guys who do this. Um, but uh, a huge part of my job, like, at least, I mean, like 75% is probably high. I'd probably say like 50 to 60% of my job because the rest of it's more mundane, uh, hearing and trial matters, but right. that, that it's, it's a huge part of my job is taking those to trial. So the homeowners file objections, the court sides with the homeowners and says, yeah, you're right. They can't fucking do this. They, they can't take it. All right. So in 1986, the Philadelphia City City Council enacted an ordinance that obligated the city to rebuild the 61 houses that had been burned down. The city agreed to provide a 10-year warranty for certain defects from the day that everybody moves into the house. Everybody enters into it, okay? Uh, it's, this is the 1986 agreement that everybody enters into where the city says, we will build and warrant 61 new houses in accord with all Philadelphia building codes. And in return, the plaintiffs, all those people I listed at the beginning, say, mm-hmm. okay, we will agree to waive the damages in the eminent domain proceedings. We, you know, we're no longer, you, you don't have to pay us. And, you know, and right. an agreement to that, you're going to rebuild our fucking houses. You're going to give us a warranty. Oh. All right. So the city goes out, the redevelopment authorities enlisted by the city, they hire this developer specifically formed to rebuild the houses, which is always a great sign, right? When like a company that wasn't in existence before a contract was proposed suddenly springs into existence. Okay. So this company named Edwards and Harper received $6.7 million to rebuild the houses. Edwards and Harper turns around and hires a general contractor named Ernest Edwards of Ebony Construction Company, Inc. to do the work. He's a director of it. Uh, Edwards obviously completed the houses uh, in the time frame and gave these very nice houses to these 61 people. That's why we currently have a lawsuit. No, Edwards uh, misappropriated money from the $6.7 million and was convicted of theft in 1990. Oh my God! Edwards and Harper failed to complete the contracts. The city and the redevelopment authority bought or hired another general contractor. Edwards Companies defaulted. The new contractor who took it was left with over one million dollars of unpaid costs. Oh my God! In 1987. 
these people move into the newly constructed homes. So for two years, they have been living in substitute housing. Luckily, the city was paying the rent for them. They move into these homes. They're back in their neighborhood. All right. All right. The houses aren't built correctly. Oh, that could mean a lot of things. In this case, it means leaking roofs, defective plumbing, improper and inadequate flooring, nails popping out of walls, bursting pipes, electrical wiring, sparking and shutting down, basements flooding, and non-functioning appliances. Well, hopefully it's covered under the damn warranty. Well, it wasn't. um, How? Because in 1987, the city amended the ordinance to authorize the city to hire the redevelopment authority to warrant the houses against construction and design-related defects. And then in 1988, the city and redevelopment authority entered into another agreement with the homeowners. And the redevelopment authority agreed to perform all the city's repair obligations on the initial warranty. And the city agreed to pay the redevelopment authority for doing so. Between 1988 and 1997, these warranties are going to expire. So during that time frame, the Redevelopment Authority went in and did all the work necessary. And one big go, they just said, we're going to go in. We're going to fix everything that's wrong with those houses, right? No. No. They went in as they got complaints and piecemeal repaired things in these obviously defective homes. In 1995, the Redevelopment Authority comes back and says, look, here's the deal. It will cost the city of Philadelphia $8.5 million to repair the original defective construction on those homes. The city and the Redevelopment Authority then go out and hire the United States Army Corps of Engineers to evaluate the cost of all the repairs that would need to be done. Uh, (laughs) Oh, my God. In 1997... The Corps, the Corps issued a comprehensive report saying these are all the things that are remaining necessary to fix, to fulfill your warranty obligations and bring these homes into code. That cost us $1.657 million on top of all the money already spent. The Corps de- uh, determined that repairs to the building envelopes itself, and that is an envelope is you know, the, the roofing. The bricks, the sliding doors, the siding, the windows, the things that form your fucking house, the outer walls of your house, account for 70% of the projected remaining cost. Oh my god. In 1998, because we're still not fucking done. Ow. In 1998, the city of Philadelphia the Redevelopment Authority, and the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers designs a solicitation for bids from private contractors to complete this work. In August of 1998, the Redevelopment Authority entered into a contract with Allied Construction Company that was the successful builder for $1,765,538 to do the work. 
Okay. Okay. The city then says we will put aside two million dollars to pay, figuring maybe there will be like three hundred thousand dollars of overages, right? Okay. Shortly after going in, Allied Construction looks at the house while they're conducting repairs and says, there's shit that was not accounted for because you could not see it. It's going to cost an additional $800,000. We are now up to $2.8 million in 1998, and these 61 houses are still not fucking livable. We are, at this point, 13 years out from the bombing, and 12 years out from when the city of Philadelphia originally said they'd repair the houses, and 10 years out from when the city of Philadelphia entered into an agreement to do so. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. And these people were living in these... these in these houses, because the city of Philly only paid for them to live in fucking livable conditions for two years until the first contractors, you know, the ones who stole the fucking money and the defective work said, house is done, bye. Oh my God. 1999. We are 14 years out from the move bombing. The estimated cost of the modifications has risen. The things that were discovered by Allied Construction as they went in and started doing repairs has risen from an additional $800,000 to an additional 2.1 to $3.5 million. What What did they build these houses out of? Popsicle sticks? I mean, it sounds like it. Holy fuck. So 1999, Ally Construction says that the Redevelopment Authority goes back to the city and says, we need another $2.9 million from you on top of all the other money you've paid to date so that we can pay Ally Construction to fulfill the warranty obligations. Let's go to 1999. A year later, this is still fucking going on. Philadelphia Mayor at that point, Ed Rendell, is leaving office. All right. okay. He sends out on December 22nd, 1999, a letter to all of the homeowners saying, we will complete these necessary repairs. The city of Philadelphia is going to do this. Don't worry. Several days later, he leaves office. Mayor John Street takes over in January of 2000, and his administration says, yeah, fuck that $2.9 million. We are not doing that. Oh, my God. This comes down because the city audit manager looks at it and says, we think it will cost for at $129,000 for each of these 61 houses, we think it will cost almost $8 million to put these houses in order. Uh, the, the controller reports in February, the city had already incurred over $13 million in warranty repairs or $211,286 per house. In March, the city estimates an additional cost of repairs somewhere between $4.5 million and $11 million. In the 1986 agreement, the city of Philadelphia said the fair market value of the houses as 
at the time that they were burned to the ground, once again, cannot stress this enough, by the Philadelphia police in conjunction with the FBI and the Pennsylvania State Police dropping three pounds of heavy explosives on a home in an African-American neighborhood was $26,000 per house or $1.586,000. Fair market value being the legal way of saying what you would get if you had sold it. All right? Right. All right? The plaintiff's expert report at trial said that as of March 23rd, 2005, plaintiffs would need to be reimbursed in the neighborhood of $250,000 for each house in order to relocate to a similar house in another Philly neighborhood. Mid-2000s, Department of License and Inspections inspects the house, reported none of the defects rendered the houses imminently dangerous. So they're not going to fall down. All right. However, the report then goes on to say there's a problem with the air vents, though. The, an original construction defect could possibly draw carbon monoxide into the houses. Now, None of the people in those houses had reported any carbon monoxide problem. One lady even said that in all the time she'd lived there, her carbon monoxide uh, sensor had never gone off. All right? But okay. the city says, well, that air vent problem with carbon monoxide coming in, that sounds eminently dangerous. And you know what eminently dangerous is a uh, factor in? Oh, God, resale value. Declaring a home or area as blighted and condemning the property as unfit for habitation. Come on. Come on. On July 21st, 2000, the plaintiffs were summoned to City Hall to meet with the mayor, Mayor John Street. The residents thought that they were going to talk about the plan moving forward, what each resident received individually from the mayor and the mayor's office when they reported to City Hall was a letter telling them that the city of Philadelphia would give them $125,000 for their house and $25,000 for relocation, but the city was con- condemning the area as blighted, would be seizing the homes under eminent domain, and that they had to be out by September 6th. Fuck off. Fuck me. 37. We are now. This is 2000. We are 15 years out from the first time the city of Philadelphia tried to use eminent domain to get those fucking houses rather than expend any money to rebuild this area. 37 of those residents said, it's enough. It's been 15 years. It's enough. And took the fucking offer. Oh my god. I mean, I get that. 15 years, you know? Oh my god. However, 24, once again, those names I read at the beginning said, fuck you. And sued the city of Philadelphia in the present lawsuit. I can't believe we just got to the lawsuit. I cannot believe we just got to the lawsuit. We are still not there because Philly was not done. What else can they do? 
Although, they have another helicopter, you assholes? Shortly after. Shortly after uh, the filing of the lawsuit, the Philadelphia Gas Works started red tagging the houses of the people who still live there. Do you know what red tagging is? No, I do not. Red tagging is where they go out and they put a red tag on your doorknob with information. And what that red tag says is, we are going to be cutting off gas service to this residence. Well, I'm sorry, what? Yep. Is that a thing you can just do? Well, if something's condemned, you see it all the time. Like where, where I am. Red Tagging's gas service. That is the gas company coming out and saying, we have found unsafe conditions. We are no longer providing gas service to this residence as a result. Green Tagging is water. We're terminating the water service to this residence. Yeah, there's a whole thing about that. But if it doesn't have gas service and it doesn't have water service, it's not fit for habitation. Uh, I got to go back to the same... Who determined that they were allowed to red tag? Because is this the vent thing again? I am telling you, it's more than likely what it was. Was the gas work said, oh, we've got something saying this is an imminently dangerous condition, so we're cutting service. Oh my god. The twenty four people we found. And now now it is unlivable. So they're doing it. If you tell me they tried an eminent domain a third time because there was no water and, and Oh heat. no, there, there's already an eminent domain proceeding going on. Like that's what okay, this, this is. That one is still ha- okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. But the plaintiffs in this lawsuit, the twenty-four people who don't take the deal, go back to court again and say, "Hey, they're trying to force us out while we have a pending lawsuit." So the court, yeah, the yeah. court issues an injunction, which is just a fancy legal word for "don't do that." Uh, yeah. okay. Like a court order saying, "Don't do that." The court issues an injunction against the Philadelphia Gas Works, forcing them to continue service to the house, and against the city of Philadelphia saying, we don't care if technically you've taken the houses already. Because that's how eminent domain works. Like the second a declaration of taking is filed, it's done. you got to contest it from that point. Okay? Okay, yeah. Um, It says, you can't demolish these houses without a court order or until an eminent domain proceeding is done. Okay, so the plaintiffs filed this action in the state court in October of 2003. It gets moved to the federal court. This action right here, this one right now. Okay. At the jury trial, the plaintiffs say uh, we've been deprived of due process. So we we haven't been given notice or opportunity to respond uh, as to the state taking it. Because anytime the government seeks to deprive you, in any means, of your life, liberty, or property, okay? And there's a whole lot that goes into that. You have to be given due process. You have to give it, be given notice of the deprivation and an opportunity to respond fairly there, too. All right? A lot of times, right. like, due process is not always a trial, but it is something like that. It's some evidentiary matter, some argument, something to allow you to defend it. And that that's, like, how we work with courts, too, like, even in civil shit. All right, because at the end of the day, what you're getting is a judgment saying somebody can take your life, liberty, or property, even in a civil matter. So you have to have notice and opportunity to respond. That's the whole idea of due process. Uh, 
the takings clause, which is the state's power to do eminent domain, the equal right. protection clause of the Constitution, that feeds into due process, uh, uh, specific performance, we covered that in one, and that is that is a lawsuit saying, hey, the contract says you have to do this, so we want a court order saying you have to do this, and breach of contract. What do you think their breach of contract was based on? What do I think, the state's breach of contract no, or no, the, the pl- lawsuit? the plaintiff's breach of contract. What do you think it was based on? Well, I'm gonna got. I, I got to go with the uh, the warranty. You you told us these would be livable houses under the warranty clause, and that it, you never even completed that. And the warranty clause was part of what? Uh, the 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 warranty clause was part of the rebuilding process. It was part the, of the first agreement, the 1988 agreement. Okay, yeah, yeah, agreed. That was originally what they said they were going to do. They never even got through the original warranties based off of the popsicle stick houses that they built these people. Well, that's interesting, though, because they actually said that the city breached three contracts. What do you think the other two were? Okay, well, they said they were going to rebuild houses that would be... Uh, uh, basically trying to replace what they blew up, livable houses, which they did not do, that they would warranty them, which the warranty was never fulfilled. I can't, what, what, I can't even imagine what the third one. The 1988 agreement, which was part of the warranty. Right. The agreement with Allied Construction, because there's something called a third-party beneficiary to a contract. Okay. Like if me and you make a contract that is obviously for the benefit of your your partner, Zanny. Okay. And that's it. It is it is you and I have an agreement that I'm going to do something for Zanny. This is a really simplistic way of explaining it. Typically only the parties to the agreement have the standing to bring a breach claim for the agreement. So if I breach it, you can obviously sue me. You're a party. If you breach it, I can obviously sue you. You're a party. But the whole contract's for the benefit of Zanny. So So if either one of us breaches it, they could sue us. They could sue us because they the contract was made in contemplation of the benefit going to them. They are a third party beneficiary and that confers them standing. Now, if you and I have a contract and there's no benefit to Zanny directly that is contemplated when we're making the contract, it's a contract between me and you, and I don't fulfill it. But Zanny okay. stands to, like, you're going to give Zanny some of the money, or Zanny would inherit out of it, all right? Okay. And Zanny sues me. The court's going to say, what's your standing? You're not a party to this contract. You're not a party or, been, or a direct beneficiary of it. You were never contemplated as being one. The fact that you are a beneficiary okay. is secondary to the purpose of the contract. But the law okay. does say there are some contracts between two people that are for the benefit of a third party. And that party should be able to bring a claim for breach to enforce the benefit they are expected to receive under the contract. Okay. Okay. So that's the allied the 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 um, agreement between Allied Construction, the good construction people, <laughs> right? And the Redevelopment Authority. Their basis for that was we are the obvious intended third party beneficiaries of this contract. We should be able to bring a breach claim. Okay. 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 Because remember the city, the city in pain, allied now. They're just kind of condemning right. everything. So they're saying we're intended beneficiaries. We should be able to enforce allied's rights because we're the beneficiaries. Okay. Okay. Got it. There is one more. There is one more contract that they allege was breached. 
The only other thing I can think. Oh my God, the mayor's letter. The mayor's letter. The letter from outgoing mayor Ed Rendell. They said that that reaffirmation of the city's obligation created an obligation to follow through and was a separate contract and should be treated as such by the court. I love that. I love that. So all of this, all of this goes to the jury. Okay. It all goes to a jury. And we like, let me tell you how Philadelphia juries are. That's, that's, that's the first because, because a jury for a federal matter has to be drawn from the state and the district in which that district court sits. All right. Have you heard of like the, the law free zone in Yellowstone park? No. All right. It's a legal theory. It would never really hold up as a matter of fact, because they've had a similar situation uh, occur once where like the judge ordered the trial in another district. Uh, at federal law, when something is in the United States District Court, all right, the jury has to be try, drawn from the state and district in which the offense, in which the, the underlying matter arises. So if I sue you in the Eastern District of Pennsylvania, all right, the jury on that lawsuit must come from Pennsylvania and it must come from the Eastern District. Now, the Eastern District's not just Philadelphia, okay? It can come from anywhere in the Eastern District, which is, okay. which is actually probably why the defendants were like, yeah, no, we want this in federal court. Because if in state court, if it was brought in state court and it was brought in the Philadelphia, I can't say the Philadelphia County Court of Common Pleas because Philly is a first class city and first class cities have special treatment under Pennsylvania law. But it's like the first judicial district of Philadelphia, which is their version of the Court of Common Pleas. If it had been brought there, the jury would have completely been from Philly. The jury would have come from Philadelphia County. And Philadelphia juries give big awards. That's actually one of the reasons that we we made our medical malpractice law when they were doing tort reform to say, no, 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 no. The lawsuit has to be brought in the county in which the medical procedure took place. Uh, Because every medical company had a significant connection with Philadelphia. So every med mal case was going to Philly because Philadelphia juries gave big awards. So when this got filed in the state court, because there were constitutional claims, there were questions of federal law, equal protection, substantive due process, the, the, the lawyers for all the defendants said, we want this in the federal court. And they did something called removal, saying there is a significant federal question. The matter should be decided by the federal courts. You can do that. The, the, the federal courts, if it's got a federal question in it, the federal right. courts can have concurrent jurisdiction. The federal courts can determine the state law claim and the federal question. And many times the state court can do the same thing, but it's just a question there as to whether it goes in. There's a whole process. You do a motion to remove it. You remove it to the federal court, and it, it's a whole thing. But it, strategically, they're saying if we stay in the Philadelphia courts, in the state court, we're getting a Philadelphia jury. We don't want a Philadelphia jury. 
we want a jury that can be drawn from anywhere in the Eastern District of Pennsylvania. We want a jury that can come from Montgomery County or Chester County or Berks County. We want a jury that can come from Lehigh County. We want a jury that can come from Northampton County. We don't want a jury of just Philadelphia residents, so let's put it in the federal court for trial because we're going to get a more diverse jury from that. Okay. Okay. So they do that. They remove it. The jury comes back. The jury says, what do you think they say? This is for the case we are talking about currently. Yes. I, I mean, they, they one of those, one of the three, I mean, all three of them should hold up, but they, they had to find, find guilty on one of the three. And, and, and oh, God, what? They first of all, uh, the jury said this allied construction contract. We're not going to let you sue for breach on that. We we don't we don't think you've made your case. Okay. Okay. So the allied the allied one's thrown right. out. But the 1988 okay. contract and the Ed Rendell letter from 1999, the jury says we find those were contracts and we find the city of Philadelphia breached them. Okay. Good. Good. The, the jury awarded them. $250,000 per plaintiff in contract damages, set as $150,000 in expectation damages. We covered that in the Harry Hand case. And $100,000 in emotional distress damages. We covered how fucking bad you have to fuck up a contract to get emotional distress previously. That was $6 million on its own. Okay. For the violation of due process... The jury awarded $152,000 per plaintiff of $70,000 per plaintiff in compensatory damages against the mayor, $30,000 in compensatory damages against the city, $52,000 in punitive damages, which is the court saying, this is so bad, we're going to make it hurt so other people don't do it. That's the purpose of punitive damages, by the way. When you hear punitive damages, it is literally, this was so bad, we want to smack you with something to make sure that nobody else does it dear god like punitive damages are basically we are punishing you and making sure other people don't do this that was another 3.65 million dollars total the takings clause the eminent domain clause uh the violation of the federal takings clause the jury awarded eighty thousand dollars against the city for $1.292 million. Jury awarded an additional $52,500 per plaintiff in conspiracy damages against all the defendants uh, of $20,000 against the mayor, $14,000 against the state, $2,000 each against Wetzel, McLaughlin, and the Redevelopment Authority with another a little less, little more than $4,000 in punitive damages against the city and a little less than $8,000 in punitive damages against the uh, mayor for another $1.26 million. The, the oh. district court then entered a total judgment amount of $12.816 million in total or a little under half or a little over half a million dollars per plaintiff. Okay. But earlier we were talking about appeals. Well, we're getting to that. Son of a bitch! So after this happens, what happens? It typically was like post-trial motions. 
right? Like motion for a new trial, motion to reduce damages. An appeal, then you, you say, we want to take an appeal of this. Uh, uh, and then there has to be a statement of errors. Uh, and the judge gets to file like a little fucking brief explaining why they found the way they did based on that statement of errors. Now, this case, when it was at trial, was presided over by United States District Court Judge Clarence Newcomer. All right. Shortly after the jury trial verdict is entered, uh, first, do you know how long a United States District Court judge serves for? Uh, that's not a lifetime appointment. It is, is it? a lifetime appointment. Okay. So the polite way to say this is shortly after the jury verdict was entered, Judge yeah. Newcomer's appointment ended. Ah. Ah. Very polite way to say that. All the post trial matters are then assigned to a new judge, John Fulham. Uh, he grant, oh. he grants a motion for judgment as a matter of law on the taking civil conspiracy and punitive damages claims, striking them down, uh, reducing the award to really just the contract claims, and he rejects a motion for a new trial. The court upheld liability on claims for breach of contract and deprivation of substitute process on both contracts. Uh, the court upholds a jury award of $150,000 for plaintiff in repair damages of $3.6 million total, $100,000 for emotional distress, or $2.4 million total. Uh, the court then reduces the amount on the substantive process claim and says you don't get any money for that because you only alleged emotional damages for it. Uh, the court then finds... Uh, yeah, it basically says by the, we, we're giving you money for the contractual damages on emotional distress. We're not going to give it to you for substitute process. Uh, the court found any award in excess of $100,000 per plaintiff for emotional distress caused by breach of contract substitute process was excessive. It reduces that a little over $12 million award yeah. to $6 million or $250,000 per plaintiff. Oh my God! Everybody, oh my God. everybody, fucking appeals. All right, the, yeah. The plaintiffs appeal, saying Judge Fulham should not have reduced the award. The city appeals, saying Judge Fulham should have given us a new trial and struck everything. The U.S. Court of Appeals for the Third Circuit comes in. And one of the reasons that the the defendants say we should not have to pay anything is the agreement is 1988. Don't say this. The position is the the 1988 agreement expired no later than November of 1996. Pennsylvania has a four-year statute of limitations for contract claims. So, if it expired in November of 1996 
and the lawsuit was filed in October of 2003. It was outside the statute. The def- That's the their si- defense. The city of one of their defenses is the city of Philadelphia says they should have filed their lawsuit no later than November of 2000. It is a stale claim. Therefore, the whole trial should be struck as oh to the 1988 agreement. Now, he, statute of limitations is one of those weird things. Right? It is a defense. Right? But it is what we call a waivable offense. Defense. It is a defense okay. that if you don't raise it at the proper time, you lose the ability to rely on it. Okay. okay. Generally, under the Federal Rules of Civil Procedure, you have to raise a defense in a responsive pleading. All right? Uh, like, okay. If, if you don't, in your first responsive pleading, say, uh, this is our defense to the lawsuit, and it falls in a waivable defense, you, uh, you waive that defense. All right? Now, statute of limitations is a little weird because it's uh, it's a weird mix of fact and jurisdiction. All right, law and jurisdiction as a defense. Because okay. technically, if a claim's stale, a court wouldn't have jurisdiction over it. And it's like issues of jurisdiction in general, a lot of times, with the exception of personal jurisdiction, issues of jurisdiction going to a court can be raised a lot of times at any point in the proceeding. All right. Okay. Uh, you don't necessarily waive it by not bringing it. And that's the case with statute of limitations. You're supposed to raise it in a responsive pleading, but you don't necessarily waive it if you don't. Okay. The key phrase is in the proceeding. Which it was not. It was not. It was raised for the first time in post-trial motions. The and third... Right. The Third Circuit came back and said, yeah, it's not unlimited. You don't necessarily have to raise it in your first response of pleading. You don't even necessarily have to raise it in a response of pleading, but you sure as fuck got to raise it before we go to trial. And your failure to raise it waves it. Okay. 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 So that's, that's the first part. I, I lost my place, and I lost my place because I, I clicked the wrong button real quick. Uh, so that's the first part. The 1980 agreement is not getting thrown out for statute of limitations on appeal. Good. All right, so that, that's a good thing. Yeah. All right, it, it then goes in and says, you know, and, by the way, you had an obligation. Like the 1988 agreement certainly created an obligation here. Read. Uh, the city's defense is, uh, yeah, the contractual obligations in 1988 only went between the redevelopment authority and the city. You know that whole third party thing that we were talking about a right. moment ago. All right. It right. said, you know, the redevelopment authority only promised to repair the homes. The defendants uh, say that the redevelopment authority was the only party responsible to the plaintiffs under the 1988 agreement. Uh, they kind of come back and say the city assumed responsibility to repair 
under the 1986 agreement, which led to the 1988 agreement uh, with the Redevelopment Authority. Uh, so the court said that they're proper fucking third-party beneficiaries of the 88 agreement. They, they can assert the claims because it's obvious uh, that the city and the Redevelopment Authority entered into that agreement for their benefit. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, so that's good. The the letter from Mayor Ed Rendell. I love that one. All right. The defendant. I love that you just threw that in there during the description. I think that's the only reason I caught that. Is like that's a weird thing to mention. Ah! Now remember the jury. The jury looked at this letter and said, "Yeah, that's a contract. That's an agreement." It, the mayor of Philadelphia is promising to rebuild these homes. He's reaffirming the agreement. Uh, we're going to get it done. And this is on the eve of him leaving. All right. Why do you think the defendant said the Rendell letter is not binding? Because he did it the day before he was leaving. He did it for political things. I, I, it's got to be something along those lines. The day before he was leaving, right? In the Pennsylvania Code, which is different than the Pennsylvania statutes, there <laughs> is a section called the Philadelphia Home Rule Charter. Home it, Rule Charter? sounds like a baseball game it's, now. It's basically a way of saying the city of Philadelphia has its own rules. Okay. Like, like they, they, there's certain things that they do that they get to do without okay. like going to the state or anything. They get to do it. It's a home rule charter. Okay. All right. <clears throat> and you will find it in the Pennsylvania code at a 351 PA code. I think it's section, like probably section 1.1 exequita, which means all of it. That whole section okay. of the code is probably that. I don't know. I haven't looked it up. Uh, I probably should have. It would have been responsible of me. We don't even edit these shows. You're fine. Right. But uh, why do you think, knowing that, knowing that, why do you think the defendants were saying that Ed Rendell letter is not appropriate? It's not a contract. It can never There's be a contract. There's either something in there that says that... that uh, those are just letters. Anything sent by the mayor is just letters. Or there's some clause that says one week before you leave, you can't do anything. The Philadelphia Home Rule Charter provides the city law department shall prepare or approve all contracts, bonds, and other instruments in writing in which the city is concerned. And this was not approved by them, therefore it's not a contract, it's just a yeah. letter from, you know, the mayor. As well as the city director of finance shall approve all contracts before they are effective. The court said uh, that the, well, the plaintiffs had said, you know, you all got approved to us that that didn't happen, that it's not a binding contract. They're wrong. Uh, under Pennsylvania law and in most states, the party asserting the validity of a contract must prove the validity of the contract. The plaintiffs didn't put out any evidence regarding uh, whether the city law department or the finance department prepared or approved the Rendell letter. Now, notice it's not saying that they didn't. It's saying the plaintiffs didn't put forth any proof that they did. 
Oh, come on. Absent that, it can't form under the Pennsylvania Code and the Philadelphia Home Rule Charter a binding contract because it didn't go through the appropriate steps. Now, there is something out there called apparent authority. Okay? Okay. And apparent authority is... All right. Here's the case that they quote. Uh, it, It is the mayor of the city of Scranton which you know from the office. Uh, I have no illusions. I I have no illusions that you or anybody listening out there know anything about the city of Scranton if it's not from the office. No, that's about right. Um, Says, I promise to pay you to audit medical claims from our insurer. All right. Uh, the, The auditor came back and said, oh, here's my invoices. And they said, no. (laughs) absolutely not and their defense is well i made the deal with the mayor who is obviously a a representative of the city okay because there's two types of authority that can bind in a contract there's actual authority and actual authority is this person has the authority to do that okay all right as the third circuit says though if you're dealing with like a government entity like a government agency Okay. Uh, you do it at your own peril because they expect you to look into what powers that person actually has to make a contract. They do? Yeah. So, like, if you're making a deal with the mayor of Bumfuck, they expect you to be like, hey, can we get something that says what the approval process for this deal is? Because we really don't want to incur these damages and find out, oh, I don't know, the city law department had to approve it. Okay. All right. That's, uh... uh. So, so in this case, like in Scranton, uh, the... <clears throat> The, the court came back and said he had no actual authority because he didn't follow the steps. You should have been aware of that, uh, first of all, because, because he didn't follow the steps. He lacked the actual authority, all right? Then we go into apparent authority because that seemed fair. Like, I could go to you and I could say, uh, and you could, uh, knowing that I'm an agent of, you know, dipshit incorporated. Okay. And maybe I'm a vice president or a president of Dipshit Incorporated. I come to you and I go, let's make a deal. I enter into a contract with you. Uh, and you rely on that contract. And it looks like I have all the authority I've represented. I had the authority from all the circumstances. It would look like I have the authority to enter into okay. that contract. And then I leave. You sue Dipshit. Dipshit goes, it had to be approved by the board according to our bylaws. But you're already out. Does that seem fair? No. Right. Because that's apparent authority. When, from all appearances, the person you're dealing with has the authority to make that deal. And you can establish everything about this made it look like he had the authority. There's really no way that we could do any amount of due diligence and establish they did not do that. It has to be a reasonable belief. Like it can't just I would be, think that like, the mayor telling you that we're going to do the thing that we said we're going to do, that seems pretty clearly apparent authority. 
Well, and uh, and that's exactly what the plaintiffs say. They say, you know, we were dealing with the mayor, so we assumed he had the power to contractually bind the city. They actually quote to a case where an agent of a radio station went out to people and said, I'm the general manager of the radio station and entered into a bunch of contracts. And the court said a reasonable person facing this might believe that, that agent had the apparent authority. And I know the next question is, well, what about the radio station? Well, then the radio station fucking sues him to get their money back after they pay you. Right. I mean, yeah. that's, that's what happens, right? However... The court said there's a difference here. What is the difference? What difference? What's the difference? Are we going back to he sent this to you two days before he left office? Not yet. It's mentioned, but not yet. What is it then? What was the reason he didn't have actual authority? Because he didn't get it signed by all these other departments that he needed? And do we hide statutes and codes under a bushel where no one can find them? Oh, come on. Because the Philadelphia Home Rule Charter and the Pennsylvania Code is publicly available. And because you should be put on notice when you're dealing with them that you may need to check those, a statute or code gives public notice of the required procedures. Had they done any due diligence, there is absolutely no way they could have believed reasonably he had apparent authority, which goes back to the law does not forgive ignorance. So they strike down the Rendell letter saying that if you had reviewed the law, you would have known it. Now, the plaintiffs come in and say, okay, but even if, even if there was no actual authority, even if there was no apparent authority, he rat- the city ratified the Rendell letter. All right? So what's ratification? Ratification is where the, the entity, the, the contract's entered into without authority, but the entity then says, okay, we'll treat it like one. Like that radio station case, if that radio station had gone to each and every one of those people and started treating it like they had a contract after that. Right. They could have ratified it by action. Or if they looked at these contracts and said, uh, okay, you know, these are good contracts, they could have expressly ratified it. Or if the radio station, aware of those contracts, took no action about them, it could be argued that they ratified it by inaction. So th- that is that the counter? So th- that's the counter. Well, that's what they that, said. That, 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 that's what they say is the counter. Oh, my God. Right? But in this matter, <laughs> the court came back and said, you know, because first of all, if it didn't follow the code, why would the city think it had any contractual obligation under the, uh, under the Rendell letter? It, was, it wasn't an approved contract under the Home Rule Charter. They didn't have to address it at all. And the plaintiffs presented no evidence that the city had taken any measure that could be acting as post-contract approval from the law department or the finance department so they couldn't establish ratification. Oh. 
So the so the Rendell letters out. The Rendell letters out. The only contract that they are finding a breach on is the nineteen eighty eight contract. I don't want to live on this planet anymore. So the plaintiffs come back with the substitute process claim, uh, and and they say you know that there were inadequate repairs. Uh, there's defective homes. The mayor took office in 2000. Work stalled. Uh, you know, we we were basically completely uh, deprived of due process. Uh, it all goes back to that. Oh no, the homes are fine, but there's an air vent issue, and then the uh, the city saying, "Well, those that that's imminently dangerous. We're going to take your houses now." Uh, so they go over all that, basically saying, "You know, he made that up." He made that up because he didn't want to fucking pay for the repairs anymore, which he did. Yeah. Oh, no shit. Like, like he fucking didn't. He just wanted the city to be able to take it. Uh, made it up, goes through all of that. Uh, in this, they rejected the mayor's office. We've already gone over everything like that. Uh, the judge in the substitute process matter had held that uh, when he said, I'm not going to overturn the substitute process award, uh, you're still keeping it. Judge Fulham actually says... Uh, that it would reasonable minds could well differ as to whether the defendant's actions in this case were sufficiently egregious to constitute a violation of due process. But note the issue is not of crucial importance since I conclude that most, if not all, of the damages attributable to the substantive due process violation would also be recoverable under some of the other theories. Uh, and striking out, that's the one where he like he said, uh, you know, I, I'm knocking out. Uh, the substance due process claim uh, because like I'm saying okay there was a deprivation however I'm saying you've already got damages uh, for the emotional distress matter so I'm knocking it down however that emotional distress damages yeah which contract do you think they were based on oh god please don't tell me the letter the Ed Rendell letter so those are gone. Those are gone. The $100,000 each of emotional distress damages are gone now. So the Third Circuit says, okay, so now that $2.4 million total of emotional distress rests entirely on whether or not the substantive due process claim succeeds or fails. Oh, my God. Oh, God. I, I don't even know where to begin with this. The city comes in and on appeal says the substantive due process claim has to fail because they never properly proved damages for emotional distress. Uh, and their neighborhood was bombed. And why? Well, emotional distress. The way you prove damages for mental distress is you have to prove actual injury. Actual injury is something more than being upset. It's something more than being unhappy. Because remember, it's emotional. It's mental. It's not they lost the property. That's property damages. This is emotional distress. So... If you your, your your police force bombed your neighborhood, that that's pretty emotionally distressing to me. But how? How do you show it? How how do you prove the actual injury? Because it's not just I'm upset. 
you have to be upset in a way that it almost physically affects you. It has to be some observable distress, some impact to you uh, that is evidenced by your conduct or observed by others. Like if somebody punches Zanny, you will be upset. Right. That will not get you emotional distress just because you have seen your loving partner assaulted. If it upsets you so much that you have stomach trouble and you can't sleep and you're losing your hair, however, now there's evidence of the degree of significant emotional distress that is observable. Oh, my God. The defendants say they didn't prove injury. The issue for the Court of Appeals is their right. Oh my God. I'm going to read you a quote in the trial transcript right now. Okay. one, One of our plaintiffs, Mr. Williams, was on the stand. Mr. Williams, have you and your family suffered from this situation? Quite a bit. How? Well, we've had counseling after 1985. My sons, my wife, and I, we sought counseling. Okay, and is the counseling of the whole family? Well, back then, yes. And this is due from? From the original fire. Are you seeking any type of counseling now? No, just stressed. Fuck. Some of the plaintiffs... just stressed isn't enough. Some of the plaintiffs had things like this. Miss Campbell, have you suffered any type of medical strike that? Have you suffered in any way because of this incident? Answer, no, ma'am. The third, uh, and some of them just said, we didn't test, they didn't testify as to anything regarding emotional distress. The court held that at the most, the testimony related only to stress from the 1985 move bombing not from the not breach to the of contract. contract not to the breach of contract oh my god they struck it they st- oh my god they struck it What are we down to now? Uh, I mean, here's the thing, Nothing. though. It, here, here's the thing. They they struck it and they didn't strike it. Okay? Because at the end of the day, what they actually said is, um, you know, we, we are, we're, we're talking about remanding this. We're talking about sending this back to the trial court. To, to hold a trial on this issue. Really? Yeah. And that's where we're at now. Yeah, that well, that's where it was at then. It probably settled after after this, to be honest. Uh but they, they sent it back to the trial court to to hear that, to to take evidence regarding the waiver uh and regarding the due process deprivations. 
Oh my God. Uh, as they say, we do not address these issues at this time because the trial court did not analyze the substantive due process claim or the Rule 50 waiver issued and erred in not requiring individual proof of causation and damages. We remand for an analysis, a determination of whether each plaintiff has adequately proven causation and damages. Now, there, there is an interesting part here. All right. Judge Fulham, uh, they, they wanted a new trial. Okay. Okay. And they wanted a new trial because of something deceased Judge Newcomer did during the trial when the mayor of Philadelphia was on the stand. What was that? Judge Newcomer directly questioned the mayor. And you can do that. Like, courts can do that. It's it's a tradition. It doesn't happen very often, but judges always have the authority to question a witness if they if they want to. Really? Uh, yeah. Yeah, like, okay. the judge can clarify things if they think it needs to be clarified. Okay, all right, that makes sense. All right. Like, the judge can ask questions. Um, so the judge starts asking questions, and at one point it is... Uh, the judge has the mayor on the stand. He's asking him uh, if, in his tenure, has there ever been an event as traumatic as the move bombing? Uh, his tenure as mayor on city council, and the mayor was like, hey, "It's up there." And just like, "Can you explain why you don't have a better understanding of all these questions?" That's easy to explain. And judge newcomers like, "Well, I wish you'd fucking explain it then." Um, so the, the, the mayor's like, well, I'm the mayor of Philadelphia and there's all these things I do. And the judge is like, but you can't remember anything about the most traumatic thing that's ever happened in your public service career in Philadelphia. Uh, you know, this is a really impressive list of duties, but aren't you responsible for the welfare of all the citizens of Philadelphia? You know, including those whose houses you all burned down in 1985. Yeah. Yeah. And like, there's a couple things like that. Uh, now, Judge Newcomer's dead now, obviously. Right. Uh, and the the defense says, yeah, that was that was prejudicial. The the judge should not have been asking these questions. It's animosity. It's prejudicial. The jury saw him asking these questions and, and almost getting contentious about it. We should get a new trial based on that. Uh, judge Fulham is kind of like, well, it expressed expressed surprise, really. Uh, And Judge Newcomer, like, immediately after he realized he may have crossed the line, went to the jury and said, like, you know, you you can't, you know, this is me asking questions. Don't, don't, I'm not a lawyer here. I don't represent anybody. I'm just clarifying issues, right? Okay. Okay. Um... Now, the, the court came back, the Third Circuit came back, uh, Judge Fulham first came back and said, well, I don't really think that was an error. All right, I, I don't think, like, even if it was an error, it wasn't a fatal error because the jury, ba- yeah, this was regarding one thing that he was asking about, and the evidence on the contract claims gave them judgment as a matter of law, uh, so any error would be harmless. Uh, okay. The Court of Appeals looked at it 
and uh, said, you know, we we think he came close. We, we, we think he may have come close, but we don't think it prejudiced anybody. So we're not going to order a new trial based on the judge asking the question. Now, the main reason is on that, you know, we... We don't want to abrogate a judge's right to question a witness. Right. Okay. Okay. So now we're going into the takings clause because there's another one here. Remember, they got $80,000 per plaintiff on the takings clause claims. Okay. <clears throat> How do you think they uh, they held on that one? I mean, the, that's the... the... Oh, God. And th- this is the they defense. Did... This, is, this is the eminent domain one. And this is the defense. So they did this is find the, those yeah. vents. Well, remember they got it, and then the new judge struck it on reconsideration. And now the plaintiff's well, okay. part, part of the plaintiff's that. appeal is we should get those back. We've proven that the city of Philadelphia deprived us of all reasonable economic use of our property. We should get that $80,000 per person back. Okay. Okay. Uh, what do you think? The Third Circuit did. Gave them the money? No. <laughs> uh. All right. So before you bring an action, it has to be ripe. Uh, yeah, there has to be something that says an injury has occurred and now we are right to do this. Okay? Okay. Eminent domain's weird in that eminent domain has one venue and one venue only. The state court. The proper way, and this is what the Third Circuit said, and it's right, under the Pennsylvania Eminent Domain Code. This is correct. The proper way for eminent domain is to challenge it in front of the state court and then bring the matter to the federal court on a federal takings claim if you fail in the state court. But they skipped the state court, they didn't did not, they? They did not take it in front of the state court first. They had to throw it out. Oh, fuck me. They had to throw it out. Likewise, they said, well, we were never paid just compensation, which is that's a Fifth Amendment matter. Private property can't be taken for public use without just compensation, which would make it a federal matter, right? Right. However, you know what they came back and said, you know, we never got just compensation. We never got it. So it's obviously a Fifth Amendment issue, right? Is, is this them saying, we offered it to you and you turned it down? This is the court saying the Fifth Amendment doesn't require we give you just compensation uh, at the time that we take it, just that we give you a method to obtain just compensation, which would be the state court procedure. And they skipped the state court procedure. So there was no Fifth Amendment violation under the takings clause. They threw out everything. Well, they didn't throw out everything. I mean, I'm paraphrasing. They kept that contract claim. (laughs) That one contract claim. Oh, my God. From a $12 million suit down to, what is this now, 1.9? Is that what we were talking about? Just about. Just about, yeah. It's not not a huge amount of money anymore. They affirmed on the contract damages for the 1988 agreement. They reversed on uh, on the emotional damages. They reversed on the Rendell damages. 
they remanded on the substantive due process and they reversed on are they affirmed on the takings which said they don't get anything from the takings this was a 2006 opinion 21 years after the city of philadelphia burned down these people's homes i i'm speechless i am speechless even understanding everything that you just threw into this i am absolutely speechless yeah yeah like you said last last time this is an angry one this is a very this angry is an angry one, one. this is this is I that mean, they literally said to these people in 1985 they burned down their homes by dropping high explosives on a residential neighborhood after killing children whose bodies they fucking gave away or lost or they're still in a box somewhere at the medical examiner's office chilling burned down these people's homes promised to rebuild them after trying to condemn them rebuilt them defectively refused to repair them and when it came time to okay really repair them said we're going to condemn your property again and they got about $150,000 a piece Uh, we need a new clause and, we need a new cloth that covers that shit. And while we covered a lot of topics tonight, and we covered topics that I'm going to cover specifically on cases with you in the future, I feel that as we go into season two of Boozy's Legal Funhouse with the new uh, new format, this case is the best example of something that I tell young lawyers all the time. And it's important What's for you that? to know. Yeah. The law's not always just. Holy shit, you ain't whistling Dixie, dude. What is just and what is legal can sometimes be worlds apart. Because legally, legally, reading through the precedents, and if you're a Patreon supporter, I will post uh, this opinion with the upload of this episode for our Patreon supporters. It's like 50 plus pages, which is why this was a long one tonight and I couldn't cover everything. But legally... The reasoning of the appeals court is sound. No, you you explained it. You you. I mean, the worst part is legally, I understand where you're going, but Jesus Christ! Exactly. Like I understand. I'm looking at it. I'm reading. I read. I've read this opinion. I read it all the way through, and I went legally. That is a sound decision, and I understand why why they're making that i don't agree with it but i like legally i'm going no that's a sound decision yeah as a fucking human i'm like this is the most unjust bullshit yeah yeah and that going into season two that's important for you alcala that is that's the first lesson you learn practicing law is what is just and what is legal can be worlds apart when they align it's a wonderful thing like when the guy in louisiana with a little bit of drippage gives his wife an std 
and gets sued and has to pay her money for it, that's just and legal just. coming the fuck together. Oh. When 24 plaintiffs whose homes were burned down in 1985 because the police said, those are black people in that house, drop a bomb. And the city of Philadelphia dicks them around for two decades? And they get this award to finally make it right? And it is reduced to, eh, here's what we think may be able to fix your home or sell you or buy, let you buy a new one. But we're striking down everything else. Oh. That, that's, that is one of the most brutal things I have ever heard. That, that, that was heartbreaking. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm laughing because if you don't laugh, you cry. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Trust me. I'm right there with you, buddy. And that is episode 27 of Boozy's Legal Funhouse, Phillies Move Money. For this episode and this episode alone, can we cross off the funhouse part? Because this house burned down from a bomb! Boozy's legal legal depression pit does not have the same fucking ring. Um, It's got the alliteration. It's got the alliteration. Oh, so that'll do it for episode 27. Now, as always, if you like the legal funhouse, this episode accepting, nobody likes this episode. I, I fucking recorded it. I don't like this episode. Uh, you can always support us over at patreon.com slash lawyers and liquor or paypal.com uh, slash lawyers and liquor. Uh, my wonderful certified legal layman, Alkali, also has his own shit that he does in addition to this. Alkali, would you like to take a moment and promote your shit? Uh, we will be streaming right after this episode, uh, the new Depression-style cast over on twitch.tv slash Alkali and Zanny. That's Zanny with an X, X-A-N-N-I. We stream about four times a week, uh, and we try not to make the entire audience cry their eyes out. I mean, we do, but we try not to. So I will, I will dig deep in my bag. And I will find us a more amusing episode 28. But I came across this one. Now, believe it or not, I actually came across this when I was researching something else. This came up on, oh, shit. They never rebuilt those houses, right? <laughs> um, Honestly, I, as far as an episode goes, I have definitely learned more from this episode than we have. In what, that was incredible because I do understand what you mean. I understand your opinion that... that, that the 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 appellate court the, the the that that was the law and that's horrifying and yeah you know, maybe next time i'll try to find something a little funnier that shows you how far a court will try to bend over backwards to ignore the fucking law to find the way they want to bathroom clowns that's the case we need bathroom <laughs> clowns so until next time thank you for tuning in to boozy's legal funhouse if you like us give it go on to your podcast service of choice give it five stars you don't have to say anything i don't give a shit um and we will see you next time you have a wonderful rest of your day Good night everyone <laughs>